are uh, continuing in our ongoing study of this short but powerful and effective little letter as I have the opportunity to preach here on Sunday mornings. Uh, and this morning we make our way to the halfway point. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And if you found it, let me invite you to stand with me uh, one last time as I read our text aloud for us to sort of get these words out before our eyes. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer together. <clears throat> Starting in verse 28, John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pray with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we are in need of your help to understand the words that we have just read. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that you are the author of every page of Scripture. And as the author, Lord, we come to you asking for the meaning of what we've just heard. We need your Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our own hearts so that we might benefit from the words that we have just read. As we make our way through this text this morning, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have humble hearts to receive it and to respond to it in obedience. Lord, we don't just want to hear another lesson to cram our minds with more Bible facts and Bible knowledge, but Lord, we want to be changed at a heart level. We don't want this just to prick our skin. We want it to get down into our heart. Lord, we want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we ask that this morning you would do just that in our lives, that we would be conformed as a church into the image of Christ. As we leave here this morning as a result of what we have heard and meditated upon, that others would look upon our lives and see Christ's face shining in and through us. Lord, would we be reminded of your love this morning, and would that love permeate our souls? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. You've likely heard the saying at one time or another, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And of course, what this saying is meant to express is just how often, whether we like it or not, for good or for bad, we tend to be a direct reflection of one of our two parents. You know, ever since I was a little boy, I can remember older adults whom I had never met before in my entire life 
seeing me for the first time and saying something along the lines of, oh my goodness, you remind me so much of your mom. Which, of course, as a middle schooler, is not exactly every seventh grade boy's dream of being told by an older adult. But to this day, I acknowledge that it is true. And even to this day, it's often the case for my three brothers and I that whenever we run into someone who knows my mom well, they'll often point out just how much of a spitting image of her we are. And I would have to agree. You've maybe heard something like this similar in your own life. People will come up to you and they express some sentiment and say, you know, you just look so much like your mom. Or you just remind me so much of your father. And oftentimes we realize the reason that they say these things to us is because there's certain traits about us, certain things that make us who we are that are just a direct reflection of one of our two parents. For example, you know, perhaps you have tight curly hair because one of your two parents has tight curly hair. Or maybe you have long black wavy hair because your mom has that same long black wavy hair. Or, you know, maybe it's your, your blue eyes your tall stature, your freckled complexion that just marks some undeniable semblance between, you know, you and one of your two parents. You could probably fill in the blank for your own situation. For for others of you, it's not some physical trait necessarily that links you to one of your two parents, but rather it's a personality trait. It's something about the way that you just act around other people that just reminds them of your mom or dad. You know, if you've ever spent, you know, three or more hours with me, you will quickly learn that I'm a running candidate for one of the least handy people on planet Earth. And if you met my dad, you would know exactly where I get this aversion to fixing things from. It just runs deeply in the Roy family blood. But, you know, perhaps for you, that personality trait that just mirrors one of your two parents, it's it's your sense of humor. It's your giftedness at cooking. It's It's your knack for working with your hands. It's your creativity and your artistic ability. Or, you know, maybe it's just your compassion for others that just beautifully reflects the personality of your mom or your dad in your life. And it's because of this reality, I think, that we often say things like, you know, it just runs in the family, or I inherit it from my mama, or like father, like son. In other words, what I'm trying to say is oftentimes the reason we are a reflection of one of our parents is because, for better or for worse, the principle remains true that like produces like. By nature, we mirror the image of the one who has given us life. And in our passage this morning, I think it is this undeniable reality that the Apostle John appeals to and builds out his entire arguments upon. There is a sense in which, among everything else that John is saying in this section of his letter, his primary goal is to drive home the reality that as God's children, we will share in God's likeness. And let me just mention here at the outset of our message this morning that this likeness that you share with the Father is not optional. This is not just a matter of choice. It's not like health insurance. We just get to decide if we're going to opt in when we turn 26. No, no, this is a matter of divine action. This is the consequence of of divine initiative. It is the result of the new birth having taken place in your soul. And so the Apostle John says to us in this text, those whom God adopts into his family will by nature inherit his family's spiritual DNA. And so, beginning with verse 28 in our text, we're going to see the first of these three family traits that John says mark out the children of God from the children of the devil. And so, starting with point number one there in your outline, John says that the first way you and I can identify those who belong to God's family is by keeping in mind that God's children practice righteousness. 
His children practice righteousness. Look back with me, starting in verses 28 and 29. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, one of the key themes that we will notice as we continue moving throughout this section of John's letter is that John clearly perceives there to be a close link between the Christian's conduct and Christ's second coming. In other words, John realizes that in many ways, our resolve, your resolve to live a holy and blameless life now it is in large measure driven by our awareness that a day is coming when our Lord and Savior will return. There is a day coming when, like a king who has been away for a while from his palace, Christ will come back. And when he does, he will require that all of his servants give an account for how well they stewarded that which he had entrusted to them. Look again at verse 28, and notice how John puts this. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You know, if you've ever spent any time babysitting another parent's kids, then you have likely realized, as I have, that the degree to which those parents are going to be pleased when they return home will be in direct proportion to how well you have managed the house and completed the tasks that they have asked of you in their absence while they were gone. You know, for example, if when those parents get home, you know, you've got all the dishes put away, the kitchen's cleaned up, the food's in the fridge, all the toys are picked up off the floor, and the kids are tucked in and put in bed right when they're supposed to be put in bed. Well, when they walk through the door, you, you can breathe easily knowing that they will be pleased with the way that you've managed things in their absence. However, if when those parents get home, the kitchen's a mess, there's dishes all over the counter, there's a stain on the brand new white couch, the toys are all over the floor, and the kids are up at 10 p.m. watching a movie eating popcorn when the parents get home, well, there's going to be a reasonable amount of shame and fear that you feel when they walk through that door. <laughs> and in many ways, I think that this is exactly what John is saying to us here at this point in his letter. He's telling us, look, Christ is coming back. That is as sure a fact as any in this life. And when he does, either you are going to have confidence because you have been found faithful, or you will shrink in shame because of your negligence with what he had asked you and I to do. And just in case we have any question about how we can obtain this confidence for when he does come back, John reminds us here of the one thing that's needful for you and I to do in his absence. He says, abide in him. Abide in him. Now, admittedly, this word abide is somewhat difficult for us to understand in our modern context, because we don't really use this word abide all that often outside of our church context on Sunday mornings. But essentially, what this word abide means in the Bible is it is to remain, to dwell, to, to make your home within, to, to daily draw near to and to be close with. In, in John 15, 4, for example, this word abide is oftentimes translated remain when Jesus said famously to his disciples, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And this is the picture, I believe, that John wants us to keep in our minds as we consider our marching orders between Christ's first and his second coming. 
He's saying to us, in effect, as a branch is grafted inseparably into the vine, as Christians, we must be grafted inseparably into Christ. On that day when Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, we do not want to be found as an orphan branch left withering and decaying and detached on the ground. Rather, we want to be found as a fruitful branch, a vibrant branch that has been daily drawing its nourishment and its life from the plentiful supply of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, if you are like me, then the question that probably arises in your mind at this point is, well, how can I know if I'm abiding in this sort of way? How can I know if that description is true of me? Well, fortunately for us, John gives us the acid test on this issue in verse 29. Look back with me and notice what he says. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, you and I can see what he's doing here. He's taking us right back to that guiding principle that really overarches and saturates this entire passage, and that is that like produces like. A good tree will always produce good fruit, and a bad tree will always produce bad fruit. And so John says, look, if Christ is a righteous Savior, then all who have been united with him, have been grafted into him, they will necessarily be righteous children. It is a one-to-one transaction. In fact, jump down your Bible a few verses and look at chapter 3, verse 7, and notice the added emphasis that John includes here on this subject. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You know, in our culture today, we often speak about medical doctors as those who have devoted the entirety of their life to practicing medicine. And similarly, we speak of attorneys who spend their entire life, you know, practicing law. Well, what John is saying to us here is that in the same way, a Christian is one who has committed the entirety of his or her life to practicing righteousness. If you are a child of God, then this right here is your life's work. No matter what else your day job might be, this right here is your main job. Everything else in our life simply exists to promote this primary work in your life. You and I are to be practitioners of righteousness. You know, your tax return documents that you submit here in a month or two, you know, they might label your occupation as, you know, a realtor, a salesman, an engineer, a mechanic, a teacher, or a full-time stay-at-home hard-working mom. But in the eyes of God, he says, your purpose here on earth is to practice righteousness and to live a life fully and completely devoted to him. You and I are to be pursuers of what is right, and we are to be a spokesperson against what is wrong. We are to be a lover of all things that are good and a hater of that which the Bible says is evil. Our entire life's ambition, if it needed to be simply distilled down into one simple task, could be this, to reproduce in our life the very righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's for this reason that John says, if you know that he is righteous, well, then you may be sure that not some people, but, but everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, notice that this description is in sharp contrast to those whom John labels as the children of the devil. The children of the devil, John says, are advocates of unrighteousness. They are pursuers of pleasure. They are inventors of evil. They're lovers of self. They're haters of God. But, but not so with us, brothers and sisters. If there is one thing that stands alone at the top of our list of family traits, one surefire mark that God's DNA is running deeply and richly through our life, it is that we are practitioners of righteousness. This, this is who we are. 
This is what sets us apart and carves us out from the unbelieving world around us. Well, that's the first mark that John says, bind together those who belong to God's family. I want us to pivot, however, and to move forward and consider this second characterization that John says marks those who belong to God's family. Not only, John says, do God's children practice righteousness, but secondly, we see that God's children are strangers in a foreign land. They're strangers in a foreign land. Now, in order to bring this point into focus for us, John begins by reminding us of our new identity in the family of God. And in doing so, he writes what might be considered some of the most wonderful words ever written in all the New Testament, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And you know, if I had to guess, there are probably a few people in your life that have done you a great deal of damage by telling you how much they loved you, but never showing you how much they loved you. People have made promises to you that they have failed to keep. They have expressed concern for your pain without ever taking the initiative to step into your pain. They've told you how valuable you are to them without ever showing you how valuable that you are to them. And if that's you this morning, then I want to just tell you something loud and clear. This is not the case with your Heavenly Father. God did not just say, I love you. He backed it up. He showed you that he meant it. He proved it. He demonstrated it. He did not just write you a letter in the mail to boost your self-esteem for a moment. No, God bankrupted heaven by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins so that we might be brought near and called children of God. (laughs) Hallelujah. And just in case we're tempted to doubt it, John adds, and so we are. And so we are. You know, I think that there's a sense in which what he's saying with that short little phrase is, you know, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a child of God, whether or not you feel like you deserve to be a child of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are loved with an unfailing love, whether or not you feel worthy of that unfailing love. You know, as I was preparing this message this past week, and just dealing particularly with this verse that we're looking at now, I just continually felt the Lord impress it upon me to remind each of you of something this morning, and that is this. You are deeply loved. You are deeply loved. Yes, you are a sinner, but you are a loved sinner. Let that sink in for a moment. Your heavenly Father loves you. He loves you. Not the fake you that we're all tempted to dress up and to bring into church on Sunday mornings. Not not the you that tells everybody, oh, I'm fine. Things are going great at home when people ask you how things are going. No, he loves the you that you really are. And despite all those dark days that you lived before your conversion and all those dark days you've lived after your conversion, God looks at you and he says, I I, I love you. I love you. Despite that one moment, (laughs) you know, that you always replay over in your mind over and over and over again late at night when you can't fall asleep, He looks at you and he says, son, daughter, I love you. Despite that marriage in your life that failed, that you're embarrassed about, despite that dream that was crushed, that mark on your public record, that that one sin that you just cannot seem to shake, that secret you've yet to tell anyone. If you are in Christ Jesus, your father looks at you and he says, child, you are mine and I love you with an everlasting love. As one preacher I love once put it, he said, you do not stop being a child of God 
simply because you are a problem child. In other words, God does not love you because of who you are. He loves us in spite of who we are. God does not love you because you're valuable. You and I are valuable because God loves us. And when he looks at you now, son, when he looks at you now, daughter, he no longer sees your sin, but rather he sees the worthiness of Jesus Christ draped like a blanket over your broken life. And it is because of his worthiness alone and his merit and his credit that we can now draw near to the Father and be called children of God. And so we are. What a comfort that is to us this morning. Now, moving forward, all that was important for us to see before we moved ahead, because it's really from this starting point, this fact that we are now children of God and no longer children of the devil, that John is now going to go further to describe what we should expect living as strangers in a foreign land. And there are really two realities that he sets before us here that are vital for us to catch. First of all, if you're taking notes, he says, because we are strangers in a foreign land, we will not fit in with the world around us. You're not going to fit in with the world around you. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And as one preacher I read on this pointed out, what John is saying here is not the world does not know things about us. I mean, if you've ever, you know, bought a car, applied for a loan, or sent in your application at a public university, then you and I are painfully aware that there are people in this world that know far more about your personal information than you ever hoped anyone would ever know. <laughs> I mean, you know, they know your name, they know your address, they know your social security number, they know your date of birth, they know what street you grew up on, they know your wife's name, they know your children's names, they know your dog's name. They know all sorts of things about you. But I don't think that's what John is saying here. Rather, what he's saying is that this world does not recognize you as you really are. They, they don't understand you. They, they can't figure you out. They don't know what makes you tick. You are a puzzle to them. And the reason, John says, that we are a puzzle to the unbelieving world is because Christ was a puzzle to the unbelieving world. I mean, think about it. Sure, they, they knew about Jesus. They, they knew he was from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, who had come forth from Galilee. But they didn't understand his truest identity. They couldn't see him as the Son of God, as the Holy One of Israel, as the Messiah who had come to seek and save the lost and to save his people from their sins. They couldn't see it. They were completely blind to it. And John says, look, if you've been born again, if his spirit lives within you, well, then we should really expect nothing different. Because as Jesus himself said, the student is not above his master. If Christ was a mystery to those in his day, well, we're going to be a mystery to those in ours. It is generally the case, <laughs> is it not, that goats don't really understand the way of sheep. Now, just by way of application, I want to just mention something here that ought to be an obvious conclusion from everything that we've just seen. If you and I are strangers living in a foreign land, then we should not expect to fit in with the world around us. Years ago, when Rachel and I were in college, we had the opportunity to go on a week-long mission trip uh, to China. And it was a great week, but one of the things that most sticks out to me as I reflect on that is as we walked throughout that city of millions of Chinese citizens, uh, we did not need to tell anyone at all that we were not from there. <laughs> I mean, that was perfectly clear to all those civilians that we were not one of them. Uh, that was as obvious as it could possibly be. I mean, we, we looked differently. 
We spoke a different language. We ate different food. I talked way louder than them, and we walked at a much faster pace than they did. I mean, by every stretch of the word, we were complete misfits in their land. And in many ways, John says, that ought to be a picture of how we look to unbelievers around us. They, they should not be able to make sense of your every action and your every decision. They will wonder at times why you do the things that you do, why you act the way that you act, and why you are the way that you are. Uh, your unbelieving friends will wonder why you choose to educate and raise your kids the way that you educate them. Your, your unbelieving co-workers will wonder why you're just so persistent about refraining from gossip and speaking poorly about your other co-workers and your bosses behind their back. Your unbelieving family members will wonder why you choose to celebrate Christmas the way that you do. Uh, the other parents on your child's sports teams will wonder why church on Sunday morning has to be such a priority over the game on Sunday morning. And what John is saying to us here with this reality in mind is, look, d d don't be surprised by all this. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Because we are strangers in a foreign land, he says, we will not fit in with the world around us. And it ought to be a great warning sign if we try to fit in with the world around us. If we begin to look like those around us, that ought to be a cause for alarm. But there's one other thing that John points out here that he wants us to see. Secondly, he says, because we're strangers in a foreign land, we will not put our hope in the world around us. We're not going to put our hope in this world. Look back now at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, one of the most defining characteristics of the church is that we are a people whose hope does not rest in this world. As children of God, we are not living for the world around us. We are sojourners. We are travelers passing through. We are on our way to another land that is ruled by another mightier king than the one that we see today. And because of that, our central hope in this life could be perfectly summarized by what the Apostle John says here in verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You know, I'm not sure that any of us here can really fully take in the force of that statement. It is almost too much for our feeble minds to comprehend that one day, brothers and sisters, you and I will see the Lord Jesus face to face. We shall see him as he really is. Not as he was at his first coming, but as he'll be at his second coming. Not in meekness, but in power. Not as a humble lamb to be slain, but as a roaring lion deserving to be worshipped. And on that day, the Bible tells us, we will look into his eyes in the words of Revelation, which will be like a blazing fire. And we will gaze upon his face, which will be like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And as we behold him and look at our Savior's love manifested in his person, all pain you've experienced in this life, every hardship you have endured, every trial you've went through, it will fade and vanish into the background. And every memory of those things will only serve to glorify your maker. 
And every tear that you have shed, it'll be wiped away from your eyes in an instant, and you will be like your Savior. Spotless, perfect, sinless, blameless, chosen, beloved, glorified, and redeemed. And it will be a day of mighty celebration, a day of constant rejoicing when the children of God are at last home with their Father. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, it ought to be our daily prayer, who said, O God, stamp eternity upon my eyes. Give me a constant yearning for the things that are to come. We may be strangers in a foreign land, yet we are pilgrims on our way to the promised land. That's the second mark that John highlights of those who are indeed the children of God. However, I want us to, to move ahead and conclude our time this morning by briefly looking at this third and final family trait that we see outlined in verses 4 through 10. And that is that God's children cannot go on sinning. God's children cannot go on sinning. Now, as I've mentioned before, the Apostle John, unlike Luke or the Apostle Paul, he's much more circular and less structured in his writing style. And because of that, he often repeats themes in his letters that he's already mentioned several times before, really in order to emphasize their importance for us. And here in verses 4 through 10, we really see him doing one prime example of that very thing. He is again bringing up the whole question of sin in the life of a believer. And with this repeated emphasis, it's as though we can see him taking a yellow highlighter and just marking over the page, trying to draw special attention to the importance of this subject for us. And essentially, what John is saying here in these seven verses is this. As sure as God's children are to practice righteousness, and as sure as they will be misfits in the world around them, it is a sure fact that being what they are, God's children cannot go on sinning. Let me just call your attention to the relevant verses here that speak to this issue in our text. You might jot these down. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And then finally, verse 9, as clear as it can be, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now here's the one sentence summary of all that he's saying here. If you have been born of God, you cannot go on sinning against God. To continue deliberately and intentionally in a lifestyle of sin is simply to declare with your life that you do not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Because if you knew him, if you really did have a saving knowledge of him, John says, well, according to verse 5, you would have known that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And furthermore, in verse 8, that the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so you can begin to see what he's saying here. To commit your life to the very things that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross is simply to reveal that you do not love the Lord that you claim to know. Because if you loved him, you would leave that sin. I mean, it's theology 101. Our affections always drive our will. Our desires always determine our actions. Let me just give you one simple illustration. You know, there's many adults living in our society today who grew up as a child of an alcoholic parent. And because of that, to this day, they have never touched a drink of alcohol in their life because of the damaging effect that alcohol had in the life of their mom or dad. 
And as you speak to these people, as you get to know them, you will almost always find that it is their deep love for that parent that has driven their deep hatred for that alcohol. (laughs) And what John is saying here is that as God's children, this is really a picture of what our relationship ought to be with our sin. It was your sin that killed your Savior. It was our lust that crucified our Lord. And because of this, there is a sense in which we just, we just cannot go on sinning. We cannot continue to derive pleasure from that which once separated us from our Father in heaven. You know, perhaps it would be most helpful to put it this way. It's, it's not so much that we can't sin. Rather, it's just that we don't want to sin. I mean, sure, you can sin. We probably already all realized that a few times this morning. But if you are a child of God, if you have been born again, if you are in Christ, well, you can no longer live at peace with your sin. Now that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, and he daily employs his ministry to plead for righteousness in your heart, to sin, it just burns your conscience. It sears your conscience. Sinning is like driving with the e-brake on. I mean, you, you can no longer find happiness in disobedience. Every sin that you commit is a sin that you desperately wish you could take back. This this is what characterizes a Christian. This is is what marks out the children of God from the children of the devil. As Christians, we can no longer be entertained by that which Christ died for. And so, you know, if I had to guess, if you are in Christ, then there are likely shows you used to watch. There's, There's music you used to listen to, websites you used to frequent bars you used to visit, words you used to use, and company that you used to keep, that you had just had to say, no more. I'm cutting it out. I'm making a clean break with this in my life, because you know deep down in your heart of hearts that it does not please your Lord and Savior. And if this sort of thing describes the pattern of your testimony, as you look in the rearview mirror of your life, if as you reflect on your own life, since you've known Christ, you see that there is a slow, imperfect, Yes, choppy, very choppy for many of us, yet vibrant, visible, steady growth in Christ's likeness. And if you notice that there are continual degrees of freedom in your life from sin, well, then God has told you in his word that you can be comforted because no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It does not happen. However, if on the other hand... (laughs) You feel that all we've been saying this morning, it's just, it's just not true of your life. As you look at your own heart, you can tell that you, know, you do not practice righteousness, that you are certainly not a misfit in the world around you. You blend right in, and that your life is not patterned by freedom from sin. And then perhaps what the Lord is trying to show you in his word this morning is that while you may bear God's image, you are not yet one of God's children. You know, it's often been said before that a, a dead fish can float with the current but only a living fish can swim against the current. I'm just wondering if that might describe some of your all's lives this morning. As you think back on the last several years or the last decade or so, you can tell that you're really just at the mercy of your own sin. You're floating with the current of the culture. There's no fight against sin, no opposition to the devil, no desire for holiness, no pursuit of righteousness. If that is you, and if you're saying, I don't want that to be me anymore, I want to be a child of God, then let me give you some hope this morning. The very righteousness that God requires of you is a righteousness that God has supplied for you. Your entrance into God's family is not based upon your good works. It's not based upon how worthy you are, how able you are to keep up all of his laws and commandments. It's based upon the worthiness of Jesus Christ alone. Only he was the sinless Savior who died. 
Only he was the perfectly obedient child of the Father. And only he, through his blood, can make you completely clean and whole this morning. And so if you want to know the love of God, well, it begins by bowing the knee to the Son of God. And that's what we're going to do here in just a moment as we respond and sing. We're going to bow the knee to Christ in our hearts as we sing his praises and declare his worthiness. So let me invite you all to stand with me as I conclude our time by praying to our Father in heaven and asking for his help to apply these things to our hearts.